If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Gene, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get this show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 129 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Jawaskin. Great to have you back for another amazing episode of Classicness. You're looking for classicness. You've come to the right place. An amazing guest today. I'm so honored to have Jim Piddick with me today. Oh, you love Jim Piddick and Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, Lethal Weapon 2, Independence Day, and a million other movies and TV shows. We talk about a ton of it. We also talk a lot about his new book, his memoir, Caught With My Pants Down, and other tales from a life in Hollywood. An amazing book. Can't wait for you to hear all about it. Can't wait to share my conversation with you. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. And I tell you, another classic. Episode 128 with Stu Show Stack. You're going to love Stu. He's a TV historian, star of the documentary Stu Show, and also has a internet show called Stu Show, where he does tons of great, awesome interviews with classic TV personalities. You're going to love it. So check that episode out, then check out that documentary. You may have heard or may not have heard, depending on how many ads have already run, but Athletic Greens, I got a special going on for my listeners, athleticgreens.com slash Dwoskin. Put a link in the show notes. You get a special deal. If you like drinking great nutritional stuff every morning, like I do. So that's for you. Little perk for my listeners. I know there's a lot of change going on at the podcast, but we kept all the social handles the same. Didn't want to change everything. Didn't want to shake everyone's world to the core. Instagram, Twitter, still at Jeff Dewaskin Show. Still my show. I'm Jeff Dewaskin. Still makes sense. Let's go with it. Website is still jeffisfunny.com, but it's also classic-conversations.com. So you can get there either way. Super cool, right? I know. I do want to take a quick second. Thank everyone for your support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor is none other than my guest, Jim Pettick, and his memoir, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, available on Amazon.com and likely wherever books are sold. Besides being a super hilarious read, and I enjoyed every second I read it, and we discussed some of the stories here, and there's plenty more for you to dive into after the show, after you buy the book, but here's a real great reason to buy the book. All of Jim's royalties from the book are donated to BAFTA's Access for All program in the U.S., the Palace for Life Foundation in the U.K., and a charity to aid Ukrainian refugees. Jim makes no money on this book. It all goes to charity. 
You get to laugh and you get to support a lot of great causes. So check out his book, Caught With My Pants Down. There's a link in the show notes or go to jimpiddick.com. All right. Well, with that being said, before you run off, I want to get right into my interview with Jim Piddick. You're going to love it. It's super fun. Jim shares so many great stories from the set of Friends, Lethal Weapon 2, the whole origin of how he created the Tooth Fairy movie, and being a part of the whole Christopher Guest troupe, which includes Best in Show, Mighty Wind, and writing one of my favorite TV shows, Family Tree. All right, well, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jim Piddick. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, actor, writer, producer. You loved him in Best in Show, The Case of the Missing Carrots, A Mighty Wind, Austin Powers, Gold Member, The Drew Carey Show, Mad About You, and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Jim Piddick. Hey. <laughs> I never had The Case of the Missing Carrots as an introduction. That was the first thing I ever did out of drama school in children's theatre in England. And I, I, I'm not sure I could even remember the title of it. I just sort of plucked it out of my memory bank when I was writing. But that is definitely the first time anyone's ever referred to The Case of the Missing Carrots. My first professional ro uh, role where I played a garden gnome. So, well, that's, uh, that's unique. Well done. All right. Well, you set the bar for garden gnomes for all those that came exactly. after you. <laughs> exactly. I wanted Hamlet and I got the garden gnome. There you go. So I appreciate you hanging with me on my podcast. So funny story, right? So I, when I, I booked the time with you, with your publicist, and I go upstairs and my wife's getting ready for bed. And I say, oh my God, guess who I just booked? And she's like, who? And I'm like, Jim Piddick. And she says, who? And I don't mean that in a bad way. She really did. She just didn't hear me. Okay. So I don't mean it like, you know, in that sense. But so the side note is to go to bed every night, we watch Friends. My wife is obsessed with Friends. So that almost like, I mean, you couldn't have even planned it any better. It's the, it's that episode, uh, Monica and Chandler's wedding reception. You come on screen with Morgan Fairchild and I'm like, him. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I say in the introduction of the book, if you if you ask 10 people on the street who Jim Pittett was, maybe one would say they knew. If you showed them a picture, five or six would say, oh, yeah, yeah I know that guy from something. I don't know what it is. And then uh, if you told them a list of all the things I've been in over the years or written, uh, I would say nine out of 10 would probably, uh, would probably know. So I'm in that sort of gray area. Uh, of, uh, who the hell is Jim Pillick? But oh yes, I know that face. He's British, isn't he? He's got a funny voice. Yes. Where do you think people know you best from? Best in show? Uh, probably best in show, but actually globally, Friends. Yeah, Friends, because that that is ridiculous. I did one episode, uh, and it was sort of seen around the world. You know, um, for multi generations now, it's like probably three generations of people have watched that show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Lethal Weapon 2, which was my first ever film, that definitely people remember that because of the, my scene that I had with Danny Glover and Joe Pesci, I had a line that became almost a catchphrase for the film, and the film went on to become the best grossing film of that year. So my line, uh, because you're black, uh, explaining why Danny Glover can't emigrate, became kind of quite one. And people still shouted at me today. <laughs> it's yeah. a great scene. My children, my, my, my daughter just shouts it all the time. No, uh, it's, uh, it's usually actually people 
African-Americans, which I met a rapper recently, and a young rapper, and I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting, and I wonder what we'll have in common. And he looks at me blankly, and then his face broke into this huge smile, and he went, but you're black. <laughs> and uh, we, had, we had a point of reference, and off we went. I couldn't say I knew his music, but there you go. How does that feel to like have something that just floats around in pop culture like that when people see you? That it, there's that moment, because there's, there's only so many of those <laughs> moments, you know? Yeah, but do you want that as your legacy? That's the question. <laughs> I do I want that on my tombstone. Some of us get nothing. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> it's nice. I mean, in Independence Day too. I mean, but about bloody time when when I'm the head of the rest of the world trying to fight off the aliens, and that line seemed to stick with people too about bloody time. Yes. Um, thank you for I your hear, service. When I hear that, yeah, exactly. So no, I mean, listen. As a someone who's a performer, you, you're happy that anyone remembers you. You know, as a human being, you're happy anyone remembers you. you know, at the end of it all, but I don't, our legacy is is uh, really. Probably our children and, and other things we do, the, the good we do in the world, not not things like that. Right, right. And friends, the one the one kind of theme though in, in the examples we just pointed out and in Best in Show is it's just you weren't just in it. You were part of this the kind of scene or some of those moments that just made it so memorable. Because in that friends episode, Joey's sort of auditioning to you. Right. From so yeah. you're you're kind of part of it even when you're not in it. He's you know, mm-hmm. and then I met him and I was mad. Right. And then, and then finally you're like, Oh my god, that was for me. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's yeah. just so fun. Was it cool being on that set? I've I've heard you know, sometimes from the guests they say that they're treated well, they're not treated you know, it's Yeah, it was great. I mean I knew Lisa. I knew Lisa from Mad About You, so so we knew and actually theater days we we were in two plays in, in the same theater in different sort of auditoriums so i knew her already i didn't know anybody else uh, and i write about it in the book you know i talk about about that 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 episode because it, it was uh, such a great show it was a lovely week i mean i hung out i mean i was with elliot gould morgan fairchild and christine bransky so we were the four old lags on the set and you know just a few years before elliot gould had been one of the biggest kind of comedy stars in hollywood so it was kind of bizarre uh, and none of us had more than you know a couple of scenes a few lines here and there so, so we just hung out. I mean, it was like being at a wedding without booze. We just sat a lot of the time at that the kind of table we were, we were at on the set. And while everything was going on, shooting or rehearsing, we'd just be sitting there, you know, uh, shooting the breeze. And uh, it was great to, to spend that week with those people. In the book, you mentioned the women were guarded. What did you mean by guarded? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought they were all a bit... I mean, listen, that was eighth year of the show... They were all earning like something like eight hundred thousand an episode, and and that, that automatically puts you in a rarefied world uh, because I certainly wasn't earning that that week. So it sort of I I felt like the fame thing and the notoriety had made them a bit more guarded around people, and Lisa even who I knew that it all felt a bit like. Whereas the guys were very loose and kind of you know oh, okay we're just we're all in the same troop and we're actors in the trenches together. So I found them a lot easier in that week. And I don't know why that is. You know, I don't know. I can't really explain it. And I don't attempt to. In the book, I'm just saying what happened. And I'm going to do a lot in that, the book. I, I just give you my experience. And sometimes people read into that, oh, they were awful. Or that was weird. And sometimes I conclude. I, I, I literally can't tell you what to make of it. But this is what happened. And as you know, I eviscerate about three people in the book, maybe four. Uh, one of whom is dead, so they can't sue me. But uh, the other two main ones I eviscerate are very much alive and well and very well known. Uh, but they deserve it. And, and, and I do name names, and that's what a lot of people seem to be responding to with the book. 
But it is, it's sort of not a celebrity memoir. It's not because I'm not a celebrity. I'm, I'm a sort of semi well known actor within the business who's done it for four and a half decades. And, and I've sort of navigated my way through the turbulent waters of Hollywood and Broadway. And now I'm revealing to everybody what I've experienced and you make of it what you will. And I, I draw certain philosophical conclusions. But I didn't feel it would be fair or even interesting to write a book where I was hiding names. And, and I think I do it on a couple of occasions because one was a someone who was under the influence of drugs and then sought help for that. So their bad behavior, I, I call out, but I didn't want to name the person in case they're either dead or um, or they're completely clean now and is in their distant past. So that felt didn't feel like legitimate target. But, but the people that are legitimate, I go after and... And I'm also, I think, very kind about most people. In fact, there's one chapter that is starts with, here are 10 A-listers, major names I've worked with, nine I loved, and one was a four asterisk word. Pick whatever word you like to fill that asterisk. Uh, and then I proceed to explain why I liked those nine people and, and why the one was awful. And, I, and in doing so, some of those people who, who are in that original 10 list are great candidates to be the four asterisks. They really were... Um, but they have bad reputations. And, and I, I kind of rehabilitate that those reputations by saying, in my experience, they were great. So it's not, um, it's, I don't think it's a vindictive or a bitter, oh, it isn't a vindictive or a bitter book. It's just an honest book, as I said, a name name. Yes, you do. And let, let's talk, let's name the book real quick. Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, which you can get right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold by Jim. It's a great read. I enjoyed it a lot. I did, And yeah, it was a lot of great stories. And the one, the one that gave me the most uh, anxiety, which was not even really celebrity related, was the one which probably I'm guessing inspired the name of the book. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Where you're on the train and uh, going to the bathroom and well, didn't lock the door. I think yeah, it, 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 yeah. <laughs> that that was the chapter that inspired the name. But then I realized there's two other stories. That one takes place in England. There was one in a, a, a doctor's office in LA and one in the south of France where I get caught with my pants down, literally. And, and someone asked me recently, they said, didn't you learn from the first time? And I said, evidently not, because it, it has happened three times. But it also is a metaphor for, um, for a person that's spent their life uh, exposing themselves psychologically and emotionally as an actor. And, and we all do it to a degree in our lives, um, and it's it's about it's about taking risks in your life and, and what can happen and, and the good and the bad and the ugly of that. But hopefully, I mean, all three instances I relate as comic stories, but and I'm the butt of the literally the butt of the joke. <laughs> so so yeah, I, I mean, but yes, that that story in particular, I I just did a, a launch of a book at a bookshop in, in a bookstore in LA. And, I was interviewed by the wonderful actor Diedrich Bader. He, he said that that story, that that particular chapter, he said he will li- literally be on his deathbed and he will die laughing because he'll remember that. And he said he walks around his garden sometimes just looking at flowers and stuff and suddenly he'll remember that story and it makes him laugh. So I, I think people will enjoy it. Oh, it's a it's a great story. I The part that kind of kind of put shivers into my spine was the part where you walk in and there's a little water on the floor. That always freaks me yeah. out. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't know what it is, but yeah. I read the that I rolled my trousers up. Anyway. Well, you got you to do what you got to do, and there's water. You just don't have time to process everything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, man. One of your early jobs was working in a sex shop. I thought that was Correct. hilarious. Love Joyce. Yeah. Beautifully tasteful name. 
Yeah, I used to demonstrate the vibrators, two speed, one thrust, one speed, three thrust, all that, and the inflatable dolls, three hair, two hole, two hole, one hair, one hair. And then I don't know how much of a family show this is, but at the end of the day, I, there were the film booths at the back of the uh, shop, which were coin-operated, uh, and my job, this was back in the, the, the late 70s, and my job was to um, yeah, it was to clean the floor of those booths, which is uh, not, a, not a pretty job. And then the, the owners of the store, who were, were quite classy people, they weren't sleazy at all, they found out that I had a degree in English literature, and they said, oh, you can't possibly work in this store. And they sent me to their bookstore, which was in Victoria Station. Uh, and it was this tiny little store, and I used to... I, this was how I paid my way through drama school, though. I used to work there on Sundays. And the store was completely schizophrenic. The front half was uh, things like Joseph Conrad's Nostromo, or uh, Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy, Nicholas Nickleby, Dickens. It was all these classics. And then the back half of the store was Bend Over Bunty and No Ifs or Ands, Just Buts. <laughs> so it was this completely schizophrenic store that uh, that I used to operate. Oh, that's too funny. Hey, everyone's got to start somewhere, though, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't really, my career hadn't really started then. I was still a student, so I was studying uh, at drama school. So I, it, it was just a, you know, a vacation job. And I do actually, if it's a good story, I'll tell it. it some of the vacation jobs I had were insane, and I was insanely bad at them, most of them. I mean, I wanted to make the book relatable to everybody. I didn't, I didn't want it to just be all about show business, and so there's... There's some, you know, sports stuff. There's some, a lot of life stuff. And I think two of the biggest stories in the book, the most dramatic and emotional ones, are nothing to do with show business. It's about life and death. Yeah, you covered a lot of great topics and, and dived into a lot of things. That's what made it so interesting. I, I love learning more about people and the things that they've done versus uh, everyone's always met someone, you know. But, I mean, a lot of those yeah, yeah. celebrity interactions that you've had are are quite, quite interesting. What was it like just arriving in America? You said you had a hundred dollars in your pocket. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to survive in those early months, you know, with such limited funds and trying to make your way and starting your career? And yeah, I've been offered this job uh, by the drama school that I'd gone to in London. They opened a branch in Berkeley, California, and they asked me to direct a couple of shows there. Uh, I was 24 years old at the time. And, um, so I'd done, I directed a couple of things in England, which was astonishing. I think back of it at that young age, and I don't know why anyone let me do it, but they did. And I went off to Berkeley for three months, and I took with me this one-man show that I'd seen, and I'd asked the writer if, uh, if I could do it in, in the United States, if anyone would, would let me. And he said, sure, you know, good luck with that. It was a play about a soccer goalkeeper playing a match in, uh, on a Sunday morning and talking and to the audience as he's playing, and... So it's this insane leaping, jumping in front of a goal, uh, and he gets called into action and stops and talks to the audience. Uh, and, and I thought it was a great piece, and, and, and I knocked on every theatre door in San Francisco during those three months I was there. And everybody rejected me, uh, quite rightly, because there was an unknown actor with a play about a subject no one gave a crap about at that time in America. And then finally, just as I was about to go back to, to England, I get a call from uh, the artistic director of this small theatre, a 99-seat theatre in San Francisco. And he said, I, uh, my first show of the season's fallen out. Can you can you get yours together? So I, I did, with the help of a, a, a British director I'd met called Richard Side in San Francisco. And, and we put the show on, and uh, I had four people in the audience on the second night. And then the reviews came out, and thankfully they were terrific. So, so it kind of jettisoned my career because it then sold out and then it was extended and extended and people word sort of spread and uh, 
got booked into various theatres around the country and um, uh, off Broadway. And then it took me to New York, and then within a few months, I was cast by George C. Scott in a production of Present Laughter by Noel Cowan, which she was doing on Broadway and directing. And so I was suddenly, you know, a few months later in this hit Broadway show with George C. Scott and Nathan Lane and Kate Burton and Dana Ivey and Christine Lati, and all, all of us were making our Broadway debuts except George. So that was in the early 80s. And suddenly my career had, uh, had sort of taken a big boost. So it's gone in fits and spurts, you know. I mean, my generally, it's been very kind of a curve, a steady curve, my, my career, sort of the tortoise and the hare. But that was one of the times when it went into overdrive. What was it like working with George C. Scott? You mentioned he was a very heavy drinker. Yeah, it was nuts. I mean, George was gruff, is the word that always comes to mind when you think of George. Um, he was in his 50s then. And he didn't really like to rehearse. He, he just wanted to get the show up and then play it. So we would rehearse not very many hours a day. And he didn't want to do the usual, well, not the usual, but the thing that some method actors like to do is sort of analyze. And, and Noel Coward doesn't really bear that. And Christine Lati wasn't used to working like that. So she would say, uh, you know, oh, George, what's, what's, what's out of my intention here? Or what's the, the motivation in this scene? And he would just look at her and go, your motivation is get on the stage, say your lines and get the hell off. And then that was it. And then we can all go home. That was sort of his approach to directing. Uh, and, and I think he went home because he was interested in watching his beloved Detroit Tigers and uh, drinking. <laughs> he missed quite a few shows. But he could handle it to a degree, um, certainly, because I remember the last night of the show. Uh, we had a matinee, actually. We closed the show on a Sunday matinee. Uh, but the night before, he took everyone out to a steakhouse in New York. We had dinner. It was late because it was after the show. And, and I'd never seen a human being consume so many drinks in one evening. And, and we all went home probably around 2 or 3 o'clock, which was standard in New York in those days. And then George was still there. And then the next morning, I came into the theater, and he was sitting in his dressing room with the door just ajar. And I hear this voice saying, Jimmy, come here, Jimmy. So I go in the dressing room and he's sitting in his underpants, uh, his boxers. And uh, the thing with George is that the less clothes he had on, the more drunk he was. That was kind of a golden rule that I figured out quite early. And he could barely speak. He was incoherent. And he was, I didn't know what he was talking about, but it was very obvious that he'd stayed up all night drinking. And now we were at three, I think it was about like 10 to 3 on a Sunday afternoon with a matinee to do. And I, and I said to the stage manager, I left the dressing room and said, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think, you know, and he said, well, the understudy's really gone home. So I said, well, we may be cancelling the last show. But we didn't, and we went on, and George didn't miss a single beat, didn't slur a single word, didn't miss anything at all. It was exactly the performance he'd given for several months before. It was astonishing to me, and also really terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Is that what they call a functioning alcoholic? I guess it's a new definition of a functioning alcoholic. I mean, that's, uh, that's, it's amazing. But I remember there was an actress called Betty Henritzi, who was an older actress in the show, and she said to me, oh, yes, yes, George. I did a Shakespeare with him once, and uh, I went out for drinks with him between the matinee and the evening performance, and he drank 17 martinis. Now, 17 martinis would kill you or I. Right, right. I don't know, I don't know you well, so it might not. You, no, it would kill, it would put me out. That, that might be what you have for breakfast. But for most people, it would sort of, it would probably be, um, yeah, curtains. But George had an incredible constitution, although it, of course, did give up not that many years later. 
So that was my experience with George. Um, I think there's a couple of other stories in there about him, but yes, there are. But, um, but yeah, he was the first major star I'd ever worked with. So it was an interesting experience. That's a heck of a first experience. I When I read that he was a big fan of the Detroit Tigers, I didn't know he was from mm-hmm. Michigan. He wasn't born in Michigan, but I, I actually, I ended up kind of digging in. I guess when his mom died, he came to work for, he came to live with his father who worked at Buick and he went to high school at Redford High School in Detroit. So that must be where his uh-huh. love for the Detroit Tigers came from. Oh yeah, he was fanatical about the Tigers. Very, very uh-huh. interesting. So one thing I, did you see the movie Val? Uh, Val Kilmer. Uh, Val Kilmer, the one he kind of with his home yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I knew Val. I've got, there's a story about him in the book. Right, but that's yes, what I was going to ask. I knew the, Val in New York. Yeah, I knew him well, that, the, around what, that time. One of the movies you mentioned, almost part of this, uh, you were almost part of the slab with Val Kilmer, Sean Penn, and Kevin Bacon. And when I yeah, read, it was a play, the Slab Boys. Yeah. When I read that, I thought in the movie Val, that was one of the things that he had filmed from. Because I remember him telling a story, he was cast as a lead, but then they got Sean Penn and they got Kevin Bacon. So I was wondering if it was... Yeah, there. yeah. He did, yes, it was the same, but like, he talks about that. I think the footage was of the stage play. I don't think it was ever done as a movie, but maybe it was. I might, I, I maybe, I, I, I meant in his movie, Val. So. It was likely a stage play. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. No, he, he, he does talk about it. And that's that's where I first... Actually, no, I did know Val before that because I was dating someone that knew, knew him from Julia. So I'd met him before. And he was, I think at that time... Uh, dating Cher, which was kind of bizarre. But um, yeah, Novell, uh, I knew then, and, and um, that, that's an amazing movie, by the way, that, doc- that documentary. It's um, pretty astonishing. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was really, really well done. Again, it's a unique look at Hollywood. It's a very unique look at Hollywood from a, from a very specific perspective and a very humble perspective. And then J- Dustin Hoffman said you had a Jewish soul. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that. That I still don't know what that means, but he's that's the, the first thing he said to me. I mean, after we spent an evening together, I guess the first time I met him, and, and uh, he, he said, Oh, yeah, you've got a Jewish soul. And I was like, Don't know what that means, but thank you. I'm quite happy that one. I was brought up a Catholic, but I'll go, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> we, all have, we, all have the, we all have the same guilt issues, so yeah. <laughs> Being Jewish myself, that's why it just caught my eye when I read it, but I believe it's a, it's a high compliment. I took it as that. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. took it as that. So. I'm very happy to be an honorary Jew. <laughs> Glad to have you. Do you want to talk about the audition for Seinfeld? That's an interesting story. Let's keep it as a. This is the fine line you do doing these shows and, and interviews. Is between between te- between teaser and spoiler. Let's just say I had an audition experience with um on for Seinfeld, and it's. And he is one of the people I've illustrated in the book. Uh, uh, it's not Seinfeld, by the way. He he was lovely himself, Jerry. It was the well-known creator of the show, Larry David. But um, but I'll leave it at that. That there is a story in there about Larry David that is not in the slightest bit flattering. <laughs> uh, and as I say, he he's deserves it. It was appalling behaviour. He's lucky he didn't uh, get the uh, the Will Smith treatment for that. <laughs> Is that, that a new coin phrase? <laughs> yes, the Will Smith treatment. Yes. As for my chapter on Will Smith, I think I have to get that excised out of the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's called a fake, fake teaser. In the, in the book, you talk about Bill Hader had written an article about 10 underrated comic actors that you should know, and you were number five. Yeah. That's got to be oh, a big thrill. Amazing. Well, it was a bizarre situation. I ran into him, and... And he said, oh, and I'd never met him. 
And uh, he said, oh, I'm a just huge fan. I just read, I read, I wrote about you. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, thank you. And he said, yeah, yeah, I wrote an article about the 10 number of comments. And I thought he was just joking. I, just, I don't know what I thought. So I went home and, and looked it up. Uh, Googled, as one does, Jim Piddock and Bill Hader. And sure enough, there was this article he'd written. It was the 10 most underrated comments of all time. And I, yeah, and I was number five. I, I was stunned. I mean, and he called me a genius, which was completely uh, inappropriate because I use the word genius for people like Fred Willis, who's my partner at Best in Show. I was, a, I was a genius, his sidekick. But, but it was, it was very nice. I mean, it was really an actor, an actor's actor compliment. It was, he understood exactly the mechanics of, of what was going on in Best in Show. And, and I was thrilled that he saw that. It was uh, quite a shock. And I've never met him since or seen him. It is always interesting when you find out how other people feel about you. Like it's 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 really uh, especially when you don't expect it. Well, that was the, the the most extraordinary thing when the book went out. The publisher sent it to uh, some people I'd worked with and various celebrities to sort of test the waters and see what they thought. I thought there would be loads of people who knew me roasting me, and the people who didn't know me so well would say, "Go away! I'm not reading anything like that." They read it, and they not only read it, but the the number of the quotes that are at the front of the book and take up about nine or ten pages were, were genuinely, I, I won't say humbling, because it's always a weird word when people say something's humbling. If anything, it makes your head bigger. It's it's far from humbling. It's like, wow. It, but it was genuinely quite touching that all these people felt so strongly to say nice things and gushing things about the book, which was lovely. Uh, I really appreciated it. I think I was roasted by one person, Billy Connolly. Uh, which I'm really delighted by, that he managed to, to get... We got one roasting quote in there. But I really did think it would just be a bunch of roasts. And so to get people to, to write genuine things, you know, or, or, or they chose to, was was a really, really pleasant surprise. You know? Oh, you had huge names in there. Russell Brand, Gene Smart, Eddie yeah. Izzard. I mean, just uh, Sherry O'Terry, Kevin Nealon. I'm just cherry-picking Ed Bagley Jr., Ian McShane. I mean, yeah, just like yeah. the list goes on and on, like you said. I know. And, 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 and if you sat down and said, you know, I want to have these people, I'm going to write dream reviews for my podcast. Those are the sort of things you'd write, you know, under a pseudonym. I mean, they were just literally, I couldn't have written nicer reviews myself. No, that was, well, speaking of Russell Brand, you were in Get Him to the Greek. I love that movie. Yeah, very, very briefly. Yeah, very yeah, briefly. Yeah, but... yeah. And then I was, um, I did a stage show with Russell Brand and uh, a bunch of amazing people. Billy Connolly, Tim Curry, Eric Idle, Eddie Izzard, Jane Leaves, uh, Tracy Ullman, Sophie Winkleman, Emily Mortimer. It was, it was an incredible show, a stage show. That's when I kind of got to know Russell a bit better. I don't know him particularly well still, I, I, but he's always been unbelievably generous of spirit when I'm with him and, and just a, an interesting guy. And, and I, I, I had to write a piece for him. I was asked to write a piece about him for a magazine. And, and, I, and I put that in the book because I, I started off by saying, you know, he's a egomaniacal sex addict, a narcissist, blah, 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 all, all the things that he says about himself. Uh, but I love him, you know, and, and, I, and here's why. He's an extraordinary paradox because he is all those things by his own admission. But he's incredibly honest and he's very, very, very spiritual guy, actually. So on a one-on-one conversation, he's, he's incredibly engaged and engaging and a very generous of spirit person, which, um, if people tend to react one way or another to him, they either love him or hate him, but I, I, I'm in the, the former camp. 
Yeah, I don't agree with everything he says, but I find it fascinating uh, no, to listen I. to him. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, he's he's definitely uh, an interesting guy. So, oh, in the book, I was reading, <laughs> I was reading, thank goodness for the internet, right? So I was reading in the book, you talked about the five-year engagement where you were Emily mm-hmm. Blunt's father. <laughs> right. And I looked up the video I found of the scene that you talk about with the donuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which never made it in the movie. It's the outtakes that you saw, I guess, on the internet. I mean, it's... Right, 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 right. But it was, it was funny. It was just as you described it. It was uh, quite hilarious. Yeah. And you filmed that in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Do you love being there? Yes, I did. It's very, very lovely there. We, we filmed uh, we were there for a while, and then we went to the Napa Valley in San Francisco. Talk about, lo- you know, great locations. It, it was great. Yeah, I very much enjoyed it. And then you wrote The Tooth Fairy. Or you, you wrote the, the, you the story idea. You had the idea for The Tooth Fairy. That yeah. was an idea that you brainstormed while talking with your daughter. I loved your reflection on that. Where you're like, you know, we were just yeah. having this conversation and now this this piece of art exists and this piece of entertainment now exists. <laughs> yes, I th- I'm glad you corrected art to entertainment. <laughs> I, was about to do, I was about to do the same thing. Uh, I'm always hesitant to call what, what, what we do art, but sometimes it is. But um, it's certainly entertainment. Yeah, that was bizarre. I mean, she was nine years old. Uh, so we, I just got divorced, actually, and she was staying with me. And we were having this conversation. I said, I really want to write a movie about Christmas. I love Christmas anyway, and, and Santa Claus movie. And we talked about it, and I realized everything's been done. So I said, what about the tooth fairy? And we talked a bit more over dinner, and she, she really loved the idea. So the next morning, I scribbled down some notes. And I had a general meeting that week with a producer called Jason Blum, who, who's now probably the biggest producer of horror movies in the world. And Jason had just left Miramax and was doing all sorts of movies. And he said, oh, this is a great idea. Why don't you go away and write a full treatment for the entire movie? You know, lay the whole thing out. And so I did. And in the process of writing that and the whole story for the movie, I realized something. I'd already written a family movie or two. And I wanted something. I wanted to write something else at that point. I think it was a drama. It was much more of a a grown-ups movie. And so... I said to Jason, look, here it is, but let's find people who have written big studio movies, family movies before. My taste is a little bit more kind of indie anyway. It's slightly off-center. Um, it's not right in that mainstream. I and mean, this it was Fox who made it, but it was a very traditional, dis- old-fashioned Disney-type idea and concept. And so we found Lal Gantz and Babalo Mandel who had written all those great movies in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s that made so much money for studios. And they, they, it was kind of great for me to actually just be a producer on it and, and help them out from the writing angle because I was a writer. And then it went through the studio system and a couple more writers were given it, uh, Stern and Ventimiglia, who had come off The Simpsons and, and they, they did the drafts. And then... Randy Mayhem Singer, who wrote Mrs. Doubtfire, did the sort of polish and did a great job. And actually, in the interim, it went to several other writers. That, you know, in the studio system, a script gets passed around, you know, several teams. And I think that in all, there's probably 12 or 14 people contributed writing to that movie. Uh, but I maintained I was given the story credit, which was great because I got the lion's share of the residuals. What was interesting about that was not having to do the heavy lifting. I did. I would go to the studio meetings and they give their notes, and some were good, some were bad, and some were incomprehensible. And instead of you know my sphincter tightening as I wondered how I could implement those notes, I would just turn to the guy and go, "Great, great, yeah, absolutely," and nod my head, and then turn to the guys and go, "So what do you think?" And completely leave them in the lurch. 
but then I did sort of actually help them out later. But it was it was nice to have that kind of freedom. And, and by the time it came to the making of the film, um, you know, which obviously we had great cast, Dwayne Johnson and um, Stephen Merchant and Billy Crystal and Julie Andrews and Seth MacFarlane, all these wonderful, funny people were in it. And, 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 I, and I had sort of forgotten that I hadn't really written a part for myself. So I said, you know, to 20th Century Fox, oh, I'd love to be in this as well. Could I be one of the, the fairies in the Tooth Fairyland? And they said, no, we've got too many old British fairies already in the movie. <laughs> and I, I said, that's three lawsuits right there. That is three <laughs> lawsuits right there. Discrimination lawsuits, um, which I didn't pursue. But actually, it turned out I was quite busy around the time when they did shoot it. I just went up to the set for a couple of days and visited. And the first question I was asked by someone as I walked onto the set who was working on the movie was, oh, oh, what, do you, what do you do on the film? So I said, well, I'm an executive producer. And so what does that mean? And I said, well, it varies. On certain movies, it's, you know, you've raised the money. On this movie, it means I come to the set for two days. And when anyone asks me what I do, I say I'm the executive producer. That is literally my job. Uh, and then I uh, went onto the set itself, and Dwayne Johnson kind of stopped the shooting and said, gathered everybody around, cast and crew, and said, look, I'd like to introduce you to the person who's responsible for you all being here today and having jobs and this movie happening. And, and it was extraordinary. I, I, a writer in a movie, in TV it's different, you're the king, but in, in the movie world, you're lucky if you're allowed on the set, and if you are, it's please go over there and just stay by the free food and shut up. So it was amazing to have him acknowledge that and do that. It was so far and above the call of duty. And I had heard, I'd never met him before, I'd heard he was a wonderful guy and a, a real stand-up person, but that was that was amazing to me. And, and I, I, I thought it was so generous. What a great guy, my yeah. goodness. What a, it's a wonderful, wonderful act and really kind of thoughtful thing to do. You know, when you're carrying a movie, you've got so much to think about. Um, and then the movie kind of did, did very, very well at the box offices. So um, thankfully it did extraordinarily well. And it's lovely to know that it's a really strange experience to think, gosh, this movie that made, what, 130, 140 million at the box office and God knows how many million uh, in ancillary markets and stuff. Um, but that just came about from an idea at dinner with my daughter. You know? So it's a lovely kind of reflection. It's a great story. I loved I loved it when I read it. It was just when you kind of put that little bow at the end of the story and mentioned that, that was it was really cool. Well, it's also, you know, I, I try and draw, as you you know, from uh, I've set out to write the book as an entertainment for everybody, whether they like show business or in show business or hated show business. I wanted to make it an entertaining book and the stories. If it wasn't a good story or anecdote, it didn't make it into the chapters. It just didn't. It wasn't going to be that here, and then I did this film, and then I did that TV show, and then I did this film. That was boring to me. And I do, what I didn't foresee was drawing sort of philosophical conclusions from all these stories. And that was a lovely sort of twist. That's, that's not to say every story has a moral, but it has my observation at the end of it, or some sort of reflection that is more profound or deeper than the, 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 the silly story or whatever, or the whatever story. That was kind of, um, that was one of them, that, that sort of was like a little, a little pebble that can grow into, that's the wrong analogy, I'm going to get lost there, but a pebble thrown into a pond can cause a lot of ripples, but a tiny seed, there we go, can grow into a massive, you know, 200 year old oak, there we go, I've got the right analogy and mixed my metaphors. So that was 
that was great. And, and all the way through, I think I, I find the things that I didn't know I was going to find when I set out to write it. I mean, I didn't know it was going to be partially a search for family and, and that my, uh, my quest throughout life has been to find my, my, what my family is and what the meaning of family is. Uh, and then by the conclusion, in the end, I, tell, I reveal that I have actually four families. And um, that's kind of interesting to me. And I hope to other people. And various other things that, that, that are slightly more, um, slightly more philosophical and deeper. You know, the, the, the value of the fact that I conclude in, in various reasons that every second of our lives, we are making choices. And those choices that we make define who we are and define our fate and our destiny. And that is your character and destiny all in one. Every single choice put together makes that up. Uh, and we think we have major choices now and again in life. You know, the big, big curve in the road and the fork in the road, rather. And, and that happens. There are major ones. But I, I firmly believe that every, every day we have, every second of every day, we're, we're making choices. Well, you and I are making choices during this interview about what we talk about, what questions you ask, how I answer it, what, 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 or what we reveal. And that will either affect people in one way or another. So everything has a consequence uh, and it all shapes the world and, and your, your life. That is not the most original thought in the Western Hemisphere, I can guarantee you that, or the Eastern Hemisphere. But I think I find that in a way that, that is very easy to understand and hopefully a fresh angle on that idea. Absolutely. I mean, you nailed it with the book. It was, uh, I think, any, like you said, anyone would enjoy it for... The stories are just so Thank delightful. You. I do. So I have a question. The long, you talked about your different families. So one of those families is mm -hmm. the Christopher Guest troop and, and all those, right? I mean, at least. You know, yes, that's a family within yeah, a family. A family yeah, within that's a family, family within right. a family. Because showbiz family is right. one. Yeah. So from the time Eugene Levy called you to, to do what became that classic and best in show, and I'd like to talk about Family Tree. When I was, uh, starting just to kind of dig in and do some some research. I, usually I'll watch an episode or so, you know, just to kind of get a feel for something. Because for some reason, I'm like obsessed with all the Christopher Guest stuff, and I had missed that for some reason. Mm -hmm. But I ended up getting obsessed with the show and ended up watching the whole thing. <laughs> so it's oh, great. Really I love happy it. to hear that. It was so good. Oh, I'm thrilled. Oh, it was so I'm good. Thrilled. I know Chris Guest. Chris Guest feels that some of his best ever work is in that series. I loved it. I was like thinking to myself the whole time I was watching Family Tree. I was like, this kind of like all those types of movies, all the movies, uh, you know, Mighty Wind and all those, like they probably could have been like six, eight episode series and kind of kind of done mm -hmm. like like that yeah. as well. And kind of just given that framework. I But, but to, let's get to that in a second. So like Best in Show, you guys shot that. You and Fred Willard. I mean, I don't even know. You, you must win an award for being able to keep straight face the way you do. But like, <laughs> but I found that fascinating. That it was going to take three days and you guys kind of knocked it into one day so you could get back to your uh, BBC show that you were doing. Too much sun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did. We shot that pre-dawn to post-dusk, 12 hours straight, I think, um, in an empty stadium with a few extras behind us to make it look like it was full. And they'd already shot the dog show stuff. So we would just watch a bit of footage and then commentate on it. And, uh, or Chris would just say, okay, this is the hound group and this happens during the scene. So off you go. So it was, um, you know, some of that, the, the outlines that we do, uh, because I've written with Chris obviously as well are, are detailed and to some degree in terms of where the scenes go. And, but the dialogue, there are jokes are suggested, but mostly it's, it's, uh, he leaves it up to the actors to come up with the, the words themselves because that gives it that fresh documentary feel. 
but the, the story and the whole structure of it is very tight. But in this case, you know, he sort of, but that he and Eugene have basically just written, you know, this is a boorish, ignorant, uh, American commentator, uh, with, with this British kind of guy, straight man who's a dog expert and uh, is bemused and confused by it all. You know, Fred, oh, it was extraordinary in that film. I mean, I think it was, he's had so many finest hours, but that was one that everybody sees as a benchmark. And, and I had to ride that train driven by a, you know, rambunctious, ill-disciplined monkey at the, at the helm, at the wheel or whatever a train has. It was an incredible journey for me, just not just shooting it, but also as an actor, because I'd always, before that, almost always been the funny guy. Uh, or the, the kind of the idiot or the clown or the protagonist. To to be the reactor and play the straight man was was a lesson for me. And I knew that I couldn't compete with Fred, and there was no point. And it 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 would have killed it. And the funniest way I could see out of this for to get the best out of it was to be completely straight and keep this show on track because we are on live on TV commentating on the show and to keep it real. Uh, and the ultimate compliment to me was when. The test audiences who saw it said, how did you get that real dog commentator to make such a fool of himself? Um, so <laughs> it was flattering in one way and not in the other, because it was like, hang on a minute, I've been an actor for a few years and you don't know who the hell I am. But, but it was it was amazing. And, and I was able to build in a little sort of arc for myself where I was amused at first. And you can see me sort of smirking and then confused by what he's saying. And then by the end, just flat out annoyed, but having to still hide it until I finally stick the knife in his back when he says some another stupid inane remark about something. And I, uh, I just turn to him and say, yes, I remember you said that last year, um, which kind of basically just <laughs> cut him dead. Uh, so I did finally get my revenge. But uh, yeah, no, that, was a, that was a great experience. I had that line written down. <laughs> it's the best line. Yes. I remember you said that last year. I remember you said that joke last year. I can't remember whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. so damning. It was just like so dismissive and like, yeah, I've had enough of you. <laughs> but... but and rewatching it, I was just picturing my, what it must have been like to sit there when all of a sudden he starts dropping like the bloodhound with a Sherlock Holmes hat and <laughs> a pipe. <laughs> just, well, it was, you know, those are genuine reactions and jet lagged reactions because I was still jet lagged. So it was, it, was, it was learning how to act with a small A. It was great for me to, to actually pull things back. And I, and I didn't know what he was going to talk about because when I met Fred, Eugene and Chris, for dinner the night I arrived on the Monday, having flown in from London, I got off an eleven-hour flight and had dinner with them. They, they sent me out of the restaurant for about five ten minutes because Eugene and Chris wanted to hear what Fred was going to do, but not let me know so that my reactions would be genuine. So they were, and you can see me trying not to laugh at times, but it sort of works because it looks like I'm vaguely amused or quite amused, but I've got I can't laugh out loud because I'm commentating on the show and trying to be serious about dogs. So it sort of works. No, it worked. It was, uh, it was awesome. It was so awesome. That's one of those where you can say, who? Best in show? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, British, the straight British guy from Best in Show. When did you become Christopher Guest's writing partner? Like, how did that evolve? Because the early ones were Eugene Levy, right? Yeah, I'd done three films. I'd done Best in Show, Mighty Wind, and Pure Consideration. And then Chris took a long break from directing. It was almost 10 years. And then I, I got a call from him to say, do you want to have lunch? Well, yeah, absolutely. Catch up. And um, we went to lunch and he said, I've, I've been thinking about this idea for a film. I've been researching my own family tree uh, um, in England and stuff and beyond. And 
I, I just, I think, uh, the, you know, I love that whole idea and there's these shows like Who Do You Think You Are and Ancestry.com and it's, it's sort of an interesting arena to me. What do you think? And I said, well, to be honest, I think it's a terrific idea, but I don't think it's a film. I think it's a TV show. And the reason I thought it was a TV show is because by its very nature, looking into a tree or examining a tree has lots of branches and things going off it. And so it's not going to be a singular story that you can tell in one 90-minute sitting. But I thought it would just be more episodic. It would be a go out here and then you'll go off there and back there and forward there and around there. He said, oh, well, that's interesting. And he said, a friend of my wife's, uh, Jamie Fez, a friend of hers, uh, is a producer at um, NBC Universal International. And she said, you know, if you have any TV ideas, come to me. So he took it to her and um, they rather liked it. So he and I just started playing around, really, not even committing to doing it. We wrote, just scribbled down stuff. We spent a couple of months just playing around and making each other laugh. And really, Chris did warn me, so I work at a glacial pace. And I, on the opposite, I kind of work at a you know sprinter's pace. So it was good for me to slow down. And we, we kind of came up with some ideas and we formed, so it started to come together. And and we began to write some stuff for, for real. And we went out and pitched the whole thing to some companies in England because we, we wanted to do it. Uh, NBC Universal International wanted to do it as a co-production. So the BBC and a couple of other places were interested and we ended up saying yes to the BBC. But they obviously needed a partner here. We came back and then we, we pitched it around and HBO were very, very keen. So we did it with HBO and the BBC and, and they committed to eight episodes off the bat. Uh, so we went off and wrote those in detail. Uh, and then it was a it was a unique experience because it was shot a bit more like a movie. We did four episodes. We did pre-production in England, did four episodes there, then came back and did six weeks of prep here and did four episodes here. So the show was kind of has two different feels to it. There's the British feel and then the American feel as he examines, Chris O'Dowd examines his American ancestry. And then we left the end of the series open-ended. We We don't we really leave a cliffhanger because we didn't know if we were going to do more. And then the BBC and HBO wanted to do another season, but it was an expensive show. It was very expensive, really, for a half hour. NBC Universal were, were not that, that thrilled about um, deficit financing it. So they pulled the plug, which was bizarre, because if they'd come to us and said, look, how can we get the budget down? I know that Chris and I could have done that quite easily and we could figure that out. But it was a shame because that show got an enormous, fanatical cult following and got amazing reviews, actually, particularly in America. It was on a lot of people's top, you know, 10 or 5 new shows of the, the year. So it was very disappointing not to, to not to be able to have another go at it. And, and, and that, I think we were both a bit bruised by that because, uh, as I said, Chris feels that, that some of his very best work is in that uh, in, in that series, and I would agree. He was great in it. You were great in it. Michael McKean, Chris O'Dowd, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fred Willard, Tom, on point. Tom Bennett. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many great. Nina Conti, are... though, I want to call out as brilliant with the monkey. <laughs> oh, my God. She was the first person that was cast because uh, we knew that we wanted to have her in it because we thought, It'd be great if there's a family member who has a glove puppet or a, a puppet on their hand that uh, is part of the family, and it's always on her hand. It's, it's, we, we just amused us, and she's such a genius, and I will use that word with her, although I use it sparingly, what she does. I mean, she's the best ventriloquist, I think, in the world. Her act is amazing if you ever get a chance to see it. So we knew that, um, and she's a good actress too. So, so she was the very first person. 
And then we, we kind of put it all together. Chris O'Dowd came in and, and Tom Bennett as his best friend and everybody else. We knew from the Chris's troupe who we were going to put here, there and everywhere. And managed to accommodate almost everybody, but not everybody. And then uh, one day Chris said, well, you know, what, what are you going to play? And I said, well, I'm going to do Mr. Fister, who's the, his neighbour and his uh, mentor, who owns a, an antique shop called Mr. Fister's Bits and Bobs. Uh, and so we knew that was roughly going to happen. And, and Chris said, well, you always do um, silly voices and put on wigs and stuff. What, 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 what's your going to be your accent for this? So I said to Chris, what's the most of, uh, the least funny accent you can think of in a sitcom or that you're likely to hear? And we both thought about it, and we came up after a, a couple of minutes with the idea that South African was just, we'd never seen, I mean, I'd done South African and Lethal Weapon too, but it was it was fair game because it was all about apartheid, so it was kind of a, you know, he was the butt of the, the joke, and it wasn't intended to be funny at that part, it was sort of was, I suppose, but it was kind of a legit target. But I know he said, oh, do, do Mr. Fister in that voice. So I started riffing in the character in that voice, and it made him laugh. And every time we'd come to one of my scenes and what we would do, he'd say, okay, go, and I would do it, and he would laugh again. And Karen Murphy, one of the producers, was just horrified. She said, you're not really going to do that South African accent. It's so horrible. And, and that just convinced me I had to. So <laughs> essentially, I chose a character for that in a sitcom based on a dare. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever chosen a character based on a dare. It was like, I dare you to do that. And I actually rather like that character. It's kind of quite fun when I look at it now. It was a great character. I, I really enjoyed it. I, like I said, I literally could not stop watching it. And I enjoyed it oh, so much. And, and it's funny, like with Nina's character with Monkey, like when it goes missing for a short period of time, like in the beginning, you think like, oh, this is this is crazy. But then all yes. of a sudden you like you realize this attachment you have. I, it was <laughs> I just I yeah. so much loved it. I really did. It trod the line, didn't it? That between being genuinely emotional and absurd. I mean, the whole time it's genuinely emotional absurd with Monkey. The scene that Chris loved is the one where uh, Monkey has the, the, the Skype call with Chris, Chris O'Dell <laughs> because Nina is too depressed to talk to her brother. So just this, this little face pops up, this monkey face, and has the conversation as if it was a third person talking about you know Nina's character and how she's so sort of, it's It's quite, it's, it's so surreal and it's so brilliantly shot and that's the, I think that was the scene Chris said that as, as good as anything I've ever done. And, it, and it's amazing to watch that scene. Very, very laugh out loud funny, but incredibly touching at the same time. That's an amazing achievement that Nina was able to do that. Oh my God, yeah. Bees asleep and Chris O'Dowd's character is like, I'm yeah. not talking to B, am I? <laughs> no, it's, no, no, of course Loved not. It. It's a monkey. Um, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And Monkey became the soothsayer. He would say everything that she couldn't say in real life. So Monkey was obscene and would say awful things to all people. And but but, but was the truth the soothsayer? Uh, and always kind of it was it was great. It's like Shakespearean almost, except it's, it's a puppet. <laughs> it was. I, I'm sad. I was sad that there isn't a second season. The National Geographic ads that you did with uh christopher guest too where he reprised nigel tufnell Tuff, mm -hmm. nigel tufnell yeah. those were great too a little conspiracy theory about stonehenge but ed beckley jr had a little conspiracy <laughs> yeah. thing going on in family tree yeah yeah we we, we find conspiracy theorists amusing because they're so stupid <laughs> they really are there are conspiracies in the world folks but uh, most conspiracy theories are absolute nonsense and they are theories 
people's fervid imagination. If you can back it up with facts, then it's a conspiracy. If not, it's it's absolute waste of your time. So QAnon, if you're listening, get a life. <laughs> oh man! Well, thank you so much. I the time kind of flew. I thank you so much for for hanging with me. I uh, I can't thank you My enough pleasure. for sharing these stories with me. Let's plug the book one more time. Caught with my pants down and other tales from life in Hollywood. And other tales from a well, life you, in Hollywood. Yes. And, all, and it goes to charity. Proceeds go to charity. Uh, yes, I'll, I, I will. Uh, yeah, but that's... So please, please buy the book because I do think you'll find it entertaining whether you like show business or not. And it certainly started to do rather well um, in the early stages. So, uh, But I would ask you please to, if you do buy it, uh, rate and review it on Amazon because that will help it generate more interest and sales. And as I say, all the money goes to three different charities, one of which is for Ukrainian refugees. So I do not stand to make a dime in of this book. So please uh, it's, uh, do it for the right causes and, and have a good time doing it because we, God knows we need some light relief at this point in, 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 in uh, history. Exactly. It's so great that you're doing that and donating that. It's, and it's a great book, everyone. I read the book. Awesome. Jim, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I can't thank you enough. Thank you, and thank you for listening. All right, everyone, the amazing Jim Piddick. How great was that? So many great stories, and I tell you, a million more great stories await you with his book, Caught With My Pants Down. Head on over there right now. Get some more Jim Piddick into your life. Support the charities that the book supports. Boom. It's a win-win. You can tell everyone you're charitable, and you get to laugh a lot. All right, well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. That means it's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow hashtag roundup on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free, doesn't cost a penny app called hashtag roundup at the Google Play Store or iTunes app store. Tweet along with us. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. Today's hashtag comes to us from hashtags a go-go weekly game on hashtag roundup. The hashtag, hashtag rejected dog show categories. That's right. We had to be inspired by the amazing best in show. Jim Pettick's classic turn with Fred Willard as the dog show announcers. Hashtags a go-go asks the internet. Hey, what are some dog show categories that just didn't make it? And the internet came together and used hashtag rejected dog show categories to make it happen. All right, so here we go. Here are some hashtag rejected dog show categories. Celebrity lookalike. Most interesting headwear. Best leg humper. Oh, it just got interesting. Yes, these are definitely hashtag rejected dog show categories. Loudest bark, best food stealer, longest tongue out Tuesday, cat pointing, the next Cujo. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to need a new judge. Most tolerant of cats. And our final hashtag rejected dog show category tweet. Smallest dog with large dog confidence. Oh, all right. Those are definitely rightfully rejected dog show category categories. <laughs> As always, all those tweeters will be retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. Go show them some love. Like them, retweet them, reply to them. Tell them you heard them on Classic Conversations. Tweet your own hashtag rejected dog show categories. Tweet. I'll show some Twitter love. Just tag me on Twitter. 
Well, with the hashtag game complete and the interview complete, that can only mean one thing. We have come to the end of another episode. Episode 129 is now complete. I would like to thank my special guest, Jim Piddick. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.